Just Under the Wire for Black History Month Richard Barry Harrison Someone needs to write a book about you. Or make a movie. A podcast feels like short shrift, but here's the thing. I've tried to tell your story in different ways, but it kept coming across like the recitation of dry dates and facts, when all I want people to know is that you were here and that you meant something to a lot of people, even if, no, especially because you were a supremely dedicated actor who never made a movie and died before even my parents were born. You deserve to be thought of today. Now, there are a lot of actors today who deserve to be thought of more, but they still have a shot at doing that, so I'll leave it to them. I'm talking about you against whom the deck was stacked in so many ways. A hundred and fifty years after you were born, why should we remember you? Well, look, I like London, Ontario, but I'm betting it's hard enough getting an acting career started there today. But as a black man, born there to fugitive slaves in 1864? <whistles> but you did it. You honored a profession with a tenacity and integrity that puts to shame so many of us today who have 20 times the opportunity and not one-half the hardship you knew, and you stayed true to your beliefs. A gentleman, a family man, a man of faith, and an actor. It was one of those overnight success stories that of course wasn't. You were in New York City in 1929, passing through on your never-ending circuit of dramatic recitations and lectures, in town at the right time, because there was a Broadway show about to go up called The Green Pastures. Mark Connolly, a white man, had written this play set in Louisiana, and it told Old Testament stories, and the cast would be all black. This was new and they couldn't find an actor of enough stature and experience to play the Lord, correction, the Lord, until you walked in. Now almost sixty-five, still tall, your white hair swept back a lifetime of speaking the words of Shakespeare, Edgar Allan Poe, Robbie Burns, the Romantic Poets. But you had done this alone. You remembered selling the London Advertiser in front of theaters there as a boy so you could befriend the actors that came through town. Your father died when you were sixteen and you went to Detroit to find work, but still developed your love of the stage and took classes in elocution. Your coach tried to get you in with the stage companies that came through Detroit, but someone would always balk at sharing the stage with a black man, no matter how talented or how light-skinned. So you did it alone. 
You memorized dozens of plays and went from town to town in Canada and the States, in churches, schools, in tents and halls, playing for audiences usually black, often illiterate. But they listened hard. You were ready to switch gears at a moment's notice. You don't want to hear The Merchant of Venice. That's fine. How about the bloody Macbeth or Julius Caesar? You played every part, running back and forth across the stage, holding their interest, learning fast that there could be no lull up there. Even when the words were strange to the ear, they got it, were swept up in the stories, cared about these people, believed you. You did this for years. You married, had kids, and you took jobs with the railroads as a waiter, as a porter. But your manner and your way with words, your knowledge of those plays, those stories, this was the son of former slaves. It impressed your bosses, who did you a kindness, got you in touch with the Lyceum Bureau in Los Angeles. This meant you toured all of North America, lecturing and reciting. The travel was constant and hard. You didn't just know those pieces, at least a hundred by now. You also had to hold forth on them, answering questions, and there could be no repeating yourself from night to night. Across the continent, over and again, and you saw that the black community needed proper dramatic training for both students and teachers. So you made time to work with schools and churches, sitting on boards and helping raise funds. You suffered a nervous breakdown, and still you founded a summer school curriculum for drama teachers in North Carolina. And you toured and lectured in the South and in New York, which was where you were finally offered the role of a lifetime. And you called the producers up to tell them yourself, no, thank you. Well, no, we really wouldn't know much about you today if you had done that, would we? You were concerned about the play. It was controversial at the time. Portraying God on stage, not least as a black man, was pretty radical. And the black community, in a time when racial stereotypes were an accepted part of the mainstream culture, had some reason to wonder what Mark Connolly was doing, writing this fable and using a vernacular that not only was not his, but was not necessarily theirs either. No, the thing was, you had lived your life this far as a gentleman, a patient man, respectful of others, never rocking the boat, and you were a believer. So you studied that script, examining the spirit of every word, because you knew if there was any meanness in it, if it satirized the beliefs you held or insulted the people it portrayed, you could never do it. And you surprised yourself when you accepted the part. And here it was, you at the age of 64, a part in a play at last, on a Broadway stage, no longer alone, now the anchor of a cast of 60, and you treated it with the respect you had shown, every role you had vivified since you were a boy. A half hour before every curtain, you would meditate on the part, so intent not to let down your Lord, your community, that you would break out in a cold sweat when you heard that cue line. Gangway for the Lord God Jehovah. And you looked no further in how to play it than the Reverend Blount back home in London at the Beth Emmanuel Church. As you had seen him deal with his congregation, 
a firm hand, but gentle, with dignity. And so you came to see this as important work. You didn't miss one of over 1,600 performances over four years in New York and on the national tour, a tour which brought you back to play three shows at the Grand Theatre in London, 70 years after you came into the world there, now fated by the mayor, given the keys to the city. You saw yourself on the cover of Time magazine. It came out the same week you took ill, and you told your understudy, carry on, the world needs this play. You expected to return, but you would not. He's gone to be with his maker, many must have said, and maybe that's how you saw it, too. It's a comforting thought. But I find my comfort in knowing how you valued something I love and to what lengths you went to live your life accordingly. And the next time I'm in London, Ontario, I'm going to stop in at the Richard B. Harrison Park and say a quiet hello. Pretty much. Episode 7, Richard B. Harrison. Written and read by Scott Clarkson. Music by the Savoy Bearcats and Garner Firebird. <laughs>